Hey, welcome to New to the Table, a podcast produced by She Sources for early career, whatever that means to you, women and gender nonconforming people pursuing leadership positions in the entertainment industry. My name's Emma Woodfield-Stern, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm also trying to figure out my way in this industry, so I'm asking our guests how they got there to demystify their journey process to help you and me. So this episode of New to the Table, I'm really excited about our guest. We have Lauren Gunderson on the pod. Lauren is one of the most popular playwrights in America, and I think that's all I'm going to say. You're going to have to listen to the rest. So pretend like you're at the coffee shop with Lauren and I, and I get to sit there and pick her genius brain about pretty much everything. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here today, Lauren. The first thing that I always ask people, because I feel like this is kind of a loaded question and I always like to hear everybody answers it, is if a stranger asks you like, what do you do? What's your response? I say that I am a playwright and sometimes I say a storyteller, but for the most part, I specifically name the theater and it's usually followed by, well, what plays of yours have I seen? And the answer is always, do you go see many plays? (laughs) Because maybe none, most likely. But if you do, you've probably run across one of mine, even if you haven't recognized or remembered my name, which is totally fine. It's kind of an interesting way to start talking about how theater, what presence theater has in any one person's life. And some people are, of course, course, devotees and some people have you know, seen a couple Christmas carols and that's it. Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. All are welcome. <laughs> I'm lucky that I grew up just a train ride out of New York City. So Broadway has always been a part of my life. And it didn't hit me until I got to college that I was like, wait, there's people who grow up without Broadway, which is, you know, so obvious because it's in one place <laughs> in the country. Um, and that's when I discovered the regional theater and tours and the importance of those and that Broadway isn't the only theater. I just like happened to grow up nearby it. So I don't know what your experience was growing up and seeing the theater often. Was there like a a moment where you knew you wanted to be a playwright or like a show? What was that like? Yeah, I did not grow up around Broadway. (laughs) I grew up outside of Atlanta, Georgia and Decatur, Decatur, Georgia. And Atlanta was a kind of a burgeoning theater scene, but not one that a lot of people knew about when I was growing up. And so I had some access to it, but not really the kind of new play, new musicals. The first musical I really ever saw was The Lion King when I was in high school, when we finally did get to New York. (laughs) My parents did have one well-worn cassette of the Les Mis anniversary concert, which, look, I'm a Les Mis fan. Me too. I know it's, I look, I know. And yet, Dear, dear place in my heart. <laughs> Me too. But the the idea that so I it was always kind of this out there thing. And what I had found access to was a lot of theater at my school. So where I learned what theater was at all with talent shows and playing Baby Bear and <laughs> Goldilocks and the Three Bears and yeah. in kindergarten. It was a very kind of <clears throat> humble but honest way to find the love of it because it was not the spectacle that made me fall in love or the great Tony winning talent that swayed me. It was just the pure act of sharing a story together in real time. And then that progressed a little bit more in the Atlanta area. There was one theater called Actors Express, which was became known and has been around for decades now for Newark. And 
that's where I went to take acting classes when I thought that's what I, I meant by I want to do theater. And my right. parents were quite generous and supporting as they always are in all of my shenanigans. And so I took classes there and then they were doing a play called Approaching Zanzibar by Tina Howe. And they were looking for a young girl to be play the young daughter. I auditioned and got my first kind of major role mm. at a professional theater. And it also, I mean, as wonderful as that was and as, as welcoming as Actors Express was, it was also a chance to say like, well, what do you mean this is a new play? <laughs> what, is, what is a right. new play? <laughs> I thought we had enough. We're good. We've got so yeah. many. <laughs> There's always been plays, right? I'm like, <laughs> Yeah. And, and Tina's play, you know, it wasn't the premiere or anything, but it was a newish play. And to do it, to start to realize, oh, I see. This is an active storytelling form, not just a repetitive one. We're not just, mm. you know, resuscitating and iterating. No, we're creating and we're listening to the world around us and the people around us to say what is not told yet what is unspoken what is what is known and not seen yet and that's when i started to realize ah I want to do that. And that, wow. of course, is a, a short walk to do. Well, that's what playwrights do. <laughs> I looked around and I saw some roles for girls. Again, this is when I knew I wanted to be an actor. I thought I wanted to be an actor. So I was looking around for the roles and there just aren't many. <laughs> there there really? weren't back then, certainly. It started like, well, you've got Scout, got Juliet, yeah. you've got Annie. We're like, okay, but that's three. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there's so many more. I kind of looked around and also saw that if there was roles for women, there was usually one or two yeah. in a show. The kind of Gertrude and Ophelia of it. We're like, well, you got two out of, you know, 20. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, the, the braver and more necessary conversation to be had in the theater is where are the plays for women? And so you see like Fefu and her friends and it was a revolution. Like, oh my yeah. God, never seen a play that has this many different kind of women talking and feeling and I mean, acts of incredible theatricality. So looking around and finding the plays in my life that have had that crimes of the heart comes to mind and you know, raising in the sun, like what incredible roles for, for women that I was able oh, yeah. to see and suddenly start to connect the dots of going, oh, that's, that's the heart of it for me. Uh, well, Sam, Sam Shepard is an amazing writer, of course, but not so much for me. It's fine. It's great. It's great. And I love that. I'm so glad that people love it. Obviously, his work's amazing, but yeah. it just doesn't hit the same way that when I think of Beth Henley or mm. I think of Lorraine Hansberry. Um, and that's fine. That's what theater's for, is to find find the stuff that, that truly speaks and moves you. Um, and you can't have an open and accessible theater hmm. uh, if you don't have one that affirms the variations of lived experience so that's anyway all of that meant as uh, a little brain I couldn't name that then but what I was saying was yeah. like more girls please <laughs> so if I weren't I, I couldn't find them as easily as I wanted to I started to write them and that is basically what I still do <laughs> so cool and so when you realized do you remember what the age range was for you when you were like wait, I can create these roles. Like I can write these roles. I was in middle school. I mean, I, I started wow. to put it together and I was, I was a young, young discovery. And I'm so grateful that I've known this for so long. I mean, it's been 30 years basically since yeah. I was 10, 10-ish and started to realize, okay, what I love in the theater as an actor is to me just exponentially what I love when I'm writing it and dreaming up mm -hmm. these worlds and these people and saying, what can I, what do I know for sure that I right. can put it to a world I don't yet know or people I don't yet know and and that combination. So it was pretty young. Now I didn't do it very well <laughs> for a while, but <laughs> by the end of high school, I had 
gone through my terrible Beckett 10 minute play phase of just basically rehashing as much existential <laughs> stuff yeah. as I could do in the weirdest of ways. And then turning to the question of kind of finding your voice, which I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but it was, okay, it's women and it's Southern at times and <laughs> it's funny and it's really heartfelt and explosively theatrical at key moments. That's kind of what I still do. And my combination, the next play was exploring history and science and all of those interesting theatrical ways too. And that's also what I still do. So I kind of set the path pretty, pretty early. And I started getting a couple of had a bit of bravado in me. And that led me to, when I wrote the play, sending it to people or sharing it with some people in the Atlanta scene who I knew. I was like, you're a director. Is this a play that I have written? (laughs) And a couple of big, big awards happened pretty early on, or certainly big to me. And feeling like that gave me just enough confidence and boost to kind of keep going. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, sometimes when you realize something so young, it's like, what are the action items to do it? I'm curious, because as someone who I didn't even realize that I wanted to write until my senior year of college, and then I'm mm. like, oh, if I had had, you know, more time to explore that, what would that have looked like? I don't even know what I would have done. So you started submitting to directors and just sending it out and putting it out into the world, basically. Yeah, I mean, I looked, the internet was young. <laughs> I sound like such an old lady, but it was um, accessible enough and I found the Dramatist Guild. Um, and thank goodness mm-hmm. I've been a complete devotee of theirs for 30 years now, big, well, 25-ish, whatever. Um, yeah. As soon as I had written that play, because I looked on there and they said, well, here's what you do with a play. You send it to these places that say, please send us your new plays. So I did. And a couple of them, you know, I got finalists or placed or got a reading or got a good job. You won a thing. And then when in Atlanta, there is a a company called Essential Theater. There still is. And it focuses on Georgia writers. And this is a very new company at the time. And a friend of mine, Peter Hardy, was he was a director who just directed me as an actor in something. And I said, said, Peter, I've written this thing and I think it's a play and I think I like it, but I don't know. You you know, you know these things. And he said, it it is a play. And, you know, he got back to a couple months later and said, and it just won our Essential Theater Award for Best Play Written by a Georgia Writer. And I was like, great. (laughs) (laughs) So it's quite a way to start. And that will not happen to most people to start on that high note. But but it, it it confirmed to me that I was doing something and the fact that I liked it and it, it was the start of it. You know what I mean? Right. I wrote something, meant something to me. And I think that's the guidepost that you always have to have. Because if you are chasing True. anything other than something you believe in and something you, you know means something to you, then you're just a trend chaser or yeah. trying to live someone else's aesthetic or find someone else's voice. And so no matter what anyone else says, if you write it because you need it and you want it, that's yeah. that's always a good place to stand. And so that's kind of how I started. You know, I did, wasn't doing it for anyone because I didn't think anyone would ever actually read it. Yeah, <laughs> then, that was like just the perk of it almost was like, oh, yeah. like, it speaks to other people too. Great. Like, yeah. And I, I did not always take that advice. I think in grad school when I finally got there. So I went to Emory undergrad. Right. Um, and then you went to was, Tisch for grad, right? Yeah. So liberal arts school, which I loved and learned the kind of answer to the question, okay, you want to write, which I didn't know at the time. Well, what are you going to write about? Yeah. <laughs> are you going to write about theater school? Are you going to write about playwrights? Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> so as much as I could learn about physics and history and philosophy and women's history and mm-hmm. so much, Southern literature was my was my focus. And so then taking that and found so many stories to tell across time and across genre, and then going to Tisch for grad, Red school. And I think that's when I started to want to prove myself so badly that I started to chase whatever was done on Broadway or off Broadway. And and it wasn't 
it, it wasn't total desperation. It was it was experimentation, and experiments are designed half of them to fail, right? <laughs> so a lot of them I did. But I, I learned like that okay. in Sharpie. That's so true. Like experiments are designed sometimes to fail. Like it's okay. Yes. It's it's, it's yes. a likely outcome. <laughs> and what I learned is like I am not Tracy Letts. That is so good. I'm so glad he is, and yeah. I don't know that I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I will not write those kinds of plays, and that is exactly what I needed to know. But I I loved seeing them as an audience member. And that's not, this is not the same thing, which is obvious, but as a playwright, especially when you're in that generative early stage Mm. to figure out what do you mean and what do you care about and, and what are the things that are going to make this story uniquely you and the kind of why, why you, why now, why this? Um, And I didn't know for a little while. I just, I knew I wanted to write, but I was trying to figure out, oh, is this all political playwright? Am I just, Mm -hmm. you know, women's rights all the time playwright? Am I the history girl? Am I, you know, and the truth is I'm a little bit of all of that depending on the play, but I was trying to pick a lane and I didn't even, this is a terrible metaphor. I was about to say like, I didn't know what car I was driving. Like, what does that mean? What do you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Trying to figure myself out is what I was saying. Yeah. And do you feel like grad school was a good vehicle for you to do that? Like what were, what were some of your main takeaways from grad school? Cause I I do feel like it's, as creatives, it's a big debate of like, do I go to grad school? Do I not go to grad school? During the pandemic and everything shut down, I didn't know what to do. I was like, I guess I applied to grad school now. And then I was like, is this what I need? I, I don't know. <laughs> so I would love to hear your perspective as somebody who went through undergrad, grad and grad for playwriting, like what that was like. And what yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I wrote better plays in undergrad when I was not studying constantly right. playwriting. And I wrote way, way worse plays in grad school, like for class, but after <laughs> class, I wrote some of my earlier plays that are, you know, published in the shelf behind me now and got my first big regional productions and are still ones that are done, you know, around the world today. So yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. I think what I needed from grad school was structure, focus, and a place to put a really, really busy mind because I I thrive on not busyness in terms of the nothingness of, of to do, to do, to do, but the, the busyness of having so many I thoughts and so many conversations I want to have and so many questions and so many collaborations yeah. that go down so quickly that I wanted to have as many deadlines and as much structure to that as I could. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I needed, because undergrad to me was a time of great creativity, because I had kind of no, no structure, right. except for here's all these interesting things in the world, what are you going to do with them? And so I taught myself, I had some mentors at, at Emory, but I never took a playwriting class. I was just writing plays all the time and having um, great conversations with my mentor, Jim Grimsley, who's a, the playwriting instructor there. So it's very weird to go from kind of no structure and just conversation and lots of work to grad school. But I thrived in grad school. I think it was amazing. I think it is unfortunately still a major draw, the credential you get by saying, I went to this place. I learned under these people. There's somebody who knows what I can do out there. It's also a great place to fail, to make terrible plays, to get that stuff, those experiments kind of into and out of your system. Some people write Tony winning plays in, in grad school. So it's not just there for you to, to make a mess like I did. But the other thing is I needed to know, I had big questions about uh, dramatic structure. What is the why of play? Why do we tell stories at all? Why do we tell them on stages? What is this thing? And I didn't know that's what I needed to know, but people like Gary Garrison, who was at NYU at the time, started this conversation about the governing dynamics, the clay math undergirding the architecture of this form. And to me, that was a revelation because I was able to see the thing 
like a skeleton, like a skeleton lets us understand how the thing walks, how it sits, how it, what, what's going on under, under the skin. And I, I needed that engineering uh, to understand what was working and when it worked, what, what, how it was working. <laughs> so that was a place that I have first had those conversations. It's kind of become a, an obsession of mine since then. Um, because to me, it starts to answer a bigger question, not just, you know, how do I write a screenplay? How do I write a first act? Like, sure, those are very helpful things. And at a certain point, we all just got to get to that question, right? You have all these themes you want to discuss. Here's your aesthetic. Here's all your theatricality. Here's who you are. Here's a, all right, right, right. What's it about? What happens? <laughs> what do they want? Do they get it? Like at a certain what point, you got to just come on yeah. down and yeah. tell us what, what the heck happens. So that was refreshing because I was a very heady playwright. I felt I was kind of like a terrible Tom Stoppard. And, you know, when I got <laughs> to grad school, just like all these big ideas and but just no form. <laughs> it is so funny that you say that. I just saw Leopold style like two nights ago. Oh, yeah. Written by Tom Stoppard. So I would love to see that. I'm um, in Tom Stoppard world right now in my brain. <laughs> good. Well, his world is so incredible and rich and yes. full of big ideas. And but I was not able to put those ideas into <laughs> yeah. form. And at a certain point, you got to have form. What, what does form mean? What do you mean? And the sense of not feeling anyways. So it's kind of, again, it's been an obsession actually writing a book about it right now. I'm so obsessed with it. The sense of, I cannot wait to read that. How do you, <laughs> me too. How do you, how do you, how do you write a thing? Yeah. And the question becomes, well, what is the form of the thing you're trying to write? What are the rules that kind of every one of that thing has? And what are the rules that should have, but you know what? Go for it. Break that rule. See, see how it goes. And there are batches of these things that you have to learn. And you really only learn by trial or you learn by analyzation. And that's what grad school allowed me to do. And it allowed me to do it 24-7, right? I was in New York watching things outside yeah. of school, in school, working on my own stuff, hearing my colleagues work, unpacking Shaw and Shakespeare, and then going to see a Sarah role play, and then going to see Blasted by Sarah Kane, it's a whole rep. But like just yeah. constant senses of all of these influences and what they can turn into and when they work, how do they work? I'm a big fan of grad school. I'm not a big fan of how much it costs, especially for a profession that is so frankly flaky, especially mm. right now, in terms of how it takes care of its artists. Yeah, um, so I am de delighted by places that charge nothing <laughs> for for this, <laughs> um, and uh, I think we need to have an honest conversation about the worth uh, of it because the worth is great. The cost is too much. The worth is right. Great. Um, what you get so out of it is so valuable, but it, unfortunately, not everyone is always in the position to make that kind of investment for those one, two, three years, however long it can be. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, luckily, I do feel there are a lot more ships popping up and scholarships that are really trying, trying to push for it. Do you feel like in your creative process, that whole doing by trial thing never really ends after grad school? <laughs> what does that look like for you as as a playwright of then finding collaborators and branching out into the world and really advocating for yourself. You're no longer under the umbrella of a structure provided to you by an institution. And what was that like for you? And and what did that feel like as a playwright in this yeah. space? I mean, I never needed any push to do the work. I was mm -hmm. and still am a bit ferocious about it, constantly writing and thinking and coming up with, with new projects. So it, it was less, there was no deadline I, I needed from grad school to give me. I needed grad school to give me 
the structure of thought, the the tools of the mind to understand these patterns, the history of this form, so that I can say, okay, I'm going to take all of this that I know works, and then I'm going to rearrange it in my own style, or I'm going to challenge it in this way, or rip it apart and put it back together. Mm-hmm. So I needed fundamentals, and I needed the practice at those fundamentals. Mm-hmm. But when I left, feeling I am fundamental now, <laughs> I have them, <laughs> great. Um, I felt I was very ready. And so I did when I was in high school, I just started, I kept submitting to the same places. <laughs> um, and uh, some of those things, you know, paid off. And then some were just, you know, not, and that's again, you, I just prefer not to dwell on any no's because it doesn't really do you any good. <laughs> yeah. So celebrate the yeses, forget the no's and keep, keep doing what you're doing. I also, I moved to California slightly by accident, which is where I still live here. And I'm glad I do. And you know, it's just a conversation. The, the conversation about career building is different than about play building, right? Because the the actual yes. writing is something you do basically on your own. And the community gets bigger and bigger the the more the draft um, develops, of course, with dramaturgs and directors and then actors and on and on. But in the end, it's kind of you and the you and the screen, you and the page. And then the career is very social very quickly. And I'm an introvert. And so it's not exactly my natural state of being to be really chatty or emaily or I got a thing. And so I, I tried to let the work lead a lot of that. But the in order for the work to be seen at all, you have to get it out somehow. And so it was emailing people I knew and taking advantage of every opportunity I was given when I got a commission, you know, really trying to hit it out of the park and let a lot of people know, you know, I got into South Coast, South Coast Rep gave me a commission and that was in their fest for a couple of years, different plays. And so every time you had something public to let people know, but it all starts with the, it all starts with the work. So going back to that, like, do I really believe in this? Do I believe in every single corner of this? And if I don't, how's anyone, how's anyone else going <laughs> to? Right. I'm an introvert as well. And I, I also do hate, I hate the cold emailing. I hate the, I, I hate it all, but I'm like, I have to do it and we all have to do it. But if you do believe in every corner of what you're doing, it makes it so much easier. I was also going to say, I really admire before. I felt like you have your, your log line before when you're explaining who you are as a writer in the world and what kind of stuff you write. And how long did that take you to kind of put together? Because even being able to be like, hi, I'm Emma and I am this, 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 and I do this, this, this is sometimes hard to encapsulate, but it's an important career tool. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that was sort of done for me The you know, <laughs> the first two or so plays of mine that, that came out were a play of mine called Emily Le Marquise de Chatelet Defends Her Life Tonight about a woman scientist and 18th century and then Silent Sky, which is about us women scientists in 20th century. <laughs> so it was like women, science, history. Got it. That's who Lauren is. And of course, the next major play of mine was I and You, which is very much not that, you know, <laughs> two right. teenagers in a room and, you know, very intimate kind of contemporary coming of age story. Yeah. So I, I wanted to, as soon as I had a definition, I want to kind of challenge it <laughs> even up myself. Yeah. But- but then you you take it, it starts with that first, you know, story I told you about being a kid and looking around and being like, there's just not, there's more women than this in the world. <laughs> there's yeah. just more women. Where are the girls? And so that kind of was just part of the definition that found me as well as I, as I was finding it. But I think it's very good for writers to know what they what they want to do with the work, knowing that every play is different and you want, every play wants something a little different. You want something different for it, which is as it should be. But, you know, there's a lot of things that align the plays, even if they don't appear to. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, took writing them to kind of know that I had, again, everything is great theoretically. (laughs) Yeah. Until it's actually 
in practice and then manifest in front of you that you kind of say, did yeah. I create what I meant to create or yeah. <laughs> do I mean what I say? It just sounds like it's sort of like simply it all goes back to, again, the moment when you realized where are the women? <laughs> What's going on? And it's interesting. I will say I, re- I remembered several times where the more plays I wrote and vast majority of them being about mostly women, I think I, there's only two plays of mine and like two dozen that have more men <laughs> than women, but most of them are all women. And then, you know, what, what that leads to is often um, was offered and now choose uh, largely women directors, non-binary and trans women, of course, included in that category. And often because the plays are written for roles for women, that means most of the actors in the space are, a lot of the designers are. So I end up or realized I kept ending up in rooms of largely, largely women and how exciting that was. And it felt so natural. And so like, great, God, this vibe is great. I love, yeah. I love going to rehearsal. And it took yeah. a while and several actors saying, I've never been in a room of this many women in my career. And these were 50 year old, 60 year old women, you know, Gosh, yeah. you're like, you're like oh dear, this is what happens. Yeah. This is the, if you build it, they will come with it. Right. This is, if you write the damn plays with the damn women, then the women will show up. (laughs) How fabulous. (laughs) That's awesome. I've noticed you write a lot about Jane Austen sprinkled in there as well. I'm a super (laughs) fan of Jane Austen. I was like, I'm so excited to see. And it got me thinking about how you, you write about real people from history or, you know, other source material, but you make it your own. And I, I wanted to ask you about that process of respecting a source material while also feeling the freedom to do what you need to do with it. Because yeah. that's a hard, it's a hard line to, to walk. Yeah. I mean, adaptation is fabulous. And what I mostly do, I've done an adaptation of Peter Pan and that's kind of it as far as adaptations, but the iterations are what right. I, continuations are the yeah. genocides that I write with my co-writer, Margot Milkon. And what we realized is, well, any adaptation, be it from a literary source or a historical source or scientific source, by yeah. I mean, you, your job is to write a play. So write the best play. No one actually cares if it is so close to this book or this moment in history, because that's not what they're here to see. Right. If they wanted the history, they'll go read a history book. They're here to see a play. So, I mean, again, for the history, you may not want to change who you know, won World War II or something, but you know, the super private moments of two people that are historical, we don't have exactly a perfect record of budget, budget. It's fine. My the example I always give is in um, Silent Sky, which is about several historical women, yeah. um, but the the main one of which is Henrietta Swan Levin, an astronomer, and her mother really supported her and has basically with her her whole life until she died. But in my play, it's her sister because this is a play about sisterhood, the ones you mm. inherit, the ones you're chosen, the sisterhood of this crazy scientific sisterhood that was created at this Harvard Observatory, the sisterhood of suffrage that was active at the time, and one of our characters is a is a big suffragist. So it's kind of the sense of, yeah, sorry, mom, <laughs> I, I I need a sister for this play. So it doesn't really change that much. I'm sure the mom would, would you know, <laughs> disagree, but that that's that's the base of better play. So yeah. my job is to, is to make the best play. So I think that's where you kind of have to give yourself some, some liberties. And then the other parts are, why are you writing this adaptation? Is it just so you can have written an adaptation of this thing? Mm-hmm. Or are you doing something with it? So this Peter Pan, when I first was offered the commission, I almost turned it down because I was like, I don't want anything to do with Peter Pan. It's <laughs> toxic. It's racist. It's sexist. It's no, I don't I, no. 
And they were like, no, 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 we want you to actually fix all that. And you're like, cool, (laughs) I'm going to fix some of it, but we'll we'll see. My job at that adaptation is not to to be as close to the original play as possible, but to say, we're going to make Wendy have a lot more ambition and turn her shocking no one into a little scientist and Tiger Lily gets all the agency and humor and independence mm-hmm. and frankly Peter learns a lesson instead of being the boy with no feelings who solves everything with violence we're like you're gonna actually accept help you're gonna see that the girls are right you're gonna admit your feelings and we're gonna have to talk about it Peter Pan and then we're gonna end the play so the <laughs> idea is like there's a reason to make all those changes not just because you could but when it does make the play better because it makes the characters more interesting and deeper yeah. and have some change happen to them which in the original doesn't so anyway there's lots yeah. of different ways to do that but I think it's all going back to what are, what is the plan why are you why you why this why now which is that first thing we, we talked about yeah. too. Mm-hmm. it all goes back to that our Jane Austen plays came out of a need, sure, one to say, gosh, we are always asked for something to do around the holidays and we never have an answer. And Margot, for a long time in her career, was a literary manager. And so she was the one doing the asking, like, what are we going to do in the holidays? What are we going to do? <laughs> we're not, you know, the one theater in town that does a big Christmas carol. So we're like, what yeah. are we going to do? So Margot and I just kind of had this long conversation about like, what does the American theater need? It needs more Christmas plays. <laughs> we did this reverse engineering of a play that was like, well, what are it? We need beloved characters. It needs family. It needs real conflict, but not one that is so um, intense that you can't resolve it. Pretty dresses and some snow and things. And <laughs> we kind of came up with the, the characters from Pride and Prejudice, which we both loved very much. Yeah. And just it spun out. And so the intention there is to go, well, let's let's have something that is not an anti-Christmas carol, Christmas carol, but does something very different than Christmas Carol does. Not mm-hmm. spooky, for mostly women. It's all about love and honesty. It's about being seen for who you really are. It is such depths of sisterhood and something that feels nostalgic and warm, but also really smart and funny in the way that Jane Austen was really smart and funny. And that's sort of why we loved her in the first place. So yeah. all of those things put us in a, a nice little place to to continue yeah. to explore. So we just wrapped up the third. It's a trilogy now, which is really wonderful and very satisfying. Yeah. I think we like wrote a dang trilogy. That's pretty good. So cool. <laughs> yeah. On a different note, it's, it's sort of a trademark of the Shoe Sources interview to bring this up. And I just also think it's important to talk about, have you faced disrespect in this industry? Mm-hmm. And how did you deal with it? And do you feel like looking back on it that you wish you had coped with it differently? Yeah. Differently? I do not like to deal personally with conflict, which is why I like to write it so much because I can make it just right and hit in the perfect way. <laughs> so I am the, after a fight or an issue, I'm the one in the shower being like, oh, I should have said, and I could have said. Absolutely. I, oh. That's the playwright in me going, I will write this perfectly. So my point is the top point at the climactic moment of this argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not how things work. I say that in that I often tended to swallow disrespect or belittlement and not deal with it in, in the moment, which I, I'm going to say that's actually okay. Some of us are better at that and some of us are not. Right. So I I don't think that would have ended for me in a great place if I had turned that switch immediately in the moment of, of an argument. And I'm sure there are some people that would have handled it way better. But a lot of this disrespect are minimization, the sweeties, the honeys, yeah. um, the kiddos, Um and knowing that they wouldn't say that to a gentleman of the exact same age and experience, that's hard to get 
instantly mad at. I get annoyed and I kind of store it away to talk about it later. Now, when I see someone else do that to somebody else, I do. I do name it. It's just when it's about me, which happens less since I'm now a newly minted 40-year-old. The other stuff is I'm a perfectionist with my work. So anything that comes in between me and my work, I will call out. So personal disrespect, I can tend to swallow as I just don't want to deal with it. And I don't like that interpersonal conflict. And I will write a strongly worded letter sometime later. <laughs> but if it comes in between me and the play, I will stand up. And that I think is where you can give yourself permission. All the, I mean, you don't need permission from me, but give, you give need yourself, it from someone. <laughs> yeah, give it that, that strength of mind to say yeah. like, no one's gonna, gonna um, make your play worse. The example I keep coming up with is from my very first really large productions, it took me a long time to realize that the director thought the point of the play was different than I thought it was. And mm. I know what it's about because I wrote it. It's yeah. my play, not his play. And the idea that he was directing the play towards a moment towards the end, that was not the moment, mm. <laughs> not it. And he never asked me. And I did not know to ask uh, that we were on the same page. And um, we got to the point where <laughs> there was a, he was kind of raising his voice at me in his office and kind of saying, well, this is not going to work because we did it. And this is the point of the play is this. And I'm trying to direct it. And I, and I literally just had to go, that is not the point of this play and had to like, I've never, oh my Lord, she rose her voice. Yeah. Um, the voice has risen. And, uh, but it was because that's, that's when I knew that was the power. And part of it because all of my grad school career, I've been told you have the power as the playwright. You have the power to pull the damn thing. No one changes a word without you approving it. So you have the power. You just got to use it. And if you choose not to use it, then you're giving it away. And again, nothing comes in between me and what I think is the best version of my my own play. And that was a moment when that was tested. And once we got it figured out, it wasn't quite fixed. <laughs> the lesson I learned is that we should have had that conversation right away. And right. if you've never worked with a director, or even if you have, on it's a new play, new project, have the conversation. What's the point of this play? What's the most important thing? It's important for you. The director has to know. Yeah. What is the moment, the actual moment? The, the climactic character defining moment for yeah. your main character in the play, point to it. It's this line. It's this page. It's this scene. It's not that scene. It's not that line. And as I think as more targeted as you can be, the better, right? So that everyone knows we are all focusing on this moment. So yeah. nobody's choreographed dancing in behind when this moment has happened. No one's entering. No one's lights are changing or sound cue. Like, no, no, no. Yeah. We're going to focus on this. That's one of those things that you can stand up and kind of like, barring everything else, we're going to get this right. Right. And then, you know, honestly, I've, I think other forms of whether it be outright discrimination, a lot of them I don't know. And I think that's the issue. Like a lot of it, we don't know. Some of it's blatant. And I think because I'm a white woman, it's probably not, I haven't gotten the blatant stuff. Right. Um, it doesn't mean it hasn't happened to me. And I would certainly not claim <laughs> to have, you know, any great, great burden, but there's been shit talked about me. I'm sure I wasn't there to hear it. There has been stuff said, well, you can't, she's this, she's dramatic. She's too proud. She's too know-it-all. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but some, I'm sure that has been said and all the way to, you know, she's a bitch or something that probably, maybe. <laughs> and that's the insidiousness of it, right? Is when you have a system that is still new to having women and anyone discriminated against in positions of power, you're going to have people not comfortable with it. So the idea is if you don't hear it, if you don't, if you aren't confronted with it, how do you continue to pursue what you know you need to do in a field where that stuff's being said some by somebody somewhere? And I think part of the answer is find your people, find the people you trust, 
So there are artistic directors, directors, actors, dramaturgs, designers that I go to as much as I can because I trust Mm -hmm. them. I know them, they get it. And they're doing theater for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the heart and soul theater. That's the let's really do something different theater. Let's make people feel something that changes how they look about the world, not just do something silly or do something that makes money. It's the theater what makes money. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, you, yeah. you know those, and the people who make it. And so knowing that those are the folks that I continue to create with, collaborate with, produce with, and just have conversations about like, how are you doing? How are yeah. we doing? How is this yeah. How is this world of theater doing? If you can have those conversations with people. And then there's, you know, the the stuff of how somebody is in the room, how somebody treats some other people. There's directors with that I had to say, I'm so sorry, I can't do this anymore because the way you treated those actors mm-hmm. um, or the way you talk to the stage management or the designers. And that's not something that I'm really comfortable, unless it's blatant and I and I hear it, I will say something in the room. But now it's one of those like, next time this play goes to to its next production or its premiere, I'm not inviting you. And I will tell you exactly why, because this isn't <laughs> You know well, what I mean? You don't have to do yeah. it in the moment um, if that's going to feel too confrontative. But anyway, so it's it, it's yeah. a funny business, but it's also, again, because of the nature of the plays that I tend to write, a lot of the people who want to do those plays are are not the dicks right. of the American theater. <laughs> they kind of know that they're not going to get away with that shit. Like, plays. <laughs> such a nice, like, such a nice, like, blessing of, of your work. That is so cool. <laughs> Also hearing the playwright does have the power. And I just don't know why. It's sometimes the playwright, it's really regarded as like, well, the playwright writes it and then the director interprets it, which is true, but it doesn't mean the director just like, takes the work and snatches it out yeah. of the playwright's hands and makes a whole new show with it, like depending on what no, we gotta stop that myth because certainly for all the playwrights out there, the first production or two are yours. The director's yeah. job is to serve your vision, which is the play's vision. We're all here because of the, this play, but it's yeah. the play that you actually know the answers to, or you know when you don't have the answer. And those are both great. So one of the most yeah. powerful things a playwright can do when, say, in a conversation or taking a note is to say, I don't know that. Thank you. I don't know. Let me think about it. Yeah. I don't know means somebody else give me an answer or somebody else take over because I don't know. It means that's a great question. Let me take it. And Let's ponder see. and think, yeah. and then I'll come back. But yeah. you never give your power away, never. Yeah. And that happens often, um, especially yeah. younger writers. And because you don't know, no one's actually teaching you this. Or I, I wasn't taught it this explicitly to say, yeah. walk at that room. You have the answers. The play is imperfect. It's also perfect. It is exactly the way it should be. And it is 10 drafts away from the one that will yeah. <laughs> be their opening night. And all of those things are true, but the continuum of it rests on you. You yeah. have the answer. And if somebody tries something out and there's an experimentation that happens in a rehearsal room, great. You get to approve it. You get to say, this isn't a part of the play now, or that was a great experiment. I don't think that's exactly what I'm going for. Yeah. And it's it's a hard place. It can be a hard place because women are frankly constantly told to to shut up, sit down, move over. So the people who really know what they're doing can, can do it. And that's not yeah. the role of the playwright. The playwright is, I know what I'm doing. I wrote this story for a reason. Yeah. If you'd like to know why, I'm happy to tell you. The thing that this that this does force playwrights to do is to know why, to, right. have reason, to have the story behind the story and to be able to answer. Again, you can always say, I don't know, and say it confidently and say, thank you for, for that. Now I know what I don't know, which is great. Yeah. But also if you do know, say it. And I think that's that helps the room feel like there is a confidence behind this thing we're all trying to create together. 
and and also still honors the process of change, right? That wonderful, I don't know, my husband is a scientist and that's his favorite, he's like, my favorite thing as a scientist is people who, when people say, I don't know, because that is a brave and bold and progressive oh. thing to do. Literally, it progresses because you said that out loud, because now we know what we don't know. This is great news. We have, yeah. we now know what to explore and to interrogate. So it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a form of power to say that. And it makes the play better too. Cause that's, that's the stuff that, that when you're trying to figure out why this doesn't work, why isn't it not funny? Why is it, doesn't it feel like it's authentic? Why isn't it doesn't feel organic or obvious? And often it's those, I don't knows that can unlock the thing to, to get it to that place that you want it to be. But you were Nate, you were the most produced playwright as according to American theater magazine in 2017, 2019, and you know, the top of the list, like <laughs> for a bajillion times. How does that feel? Like, <laughs> honestly, like, how does that feel? That's so cool. It is so cool. It's amazing. It's, it's a, it's a big confirmation of why I do any of it. You know what I mean? It's again, going back to what we're saying, I write stuff that I believe in, that I care about, that I want to see. And so it confirms that other people care about that stuff too, and want to see it as well. The career part of it is wonderful and helpful. And I think Every time I'm on or at the top of that list, I don't people want to read more of my plays, which is great. But I will say it's also a great list because it does show incredible progress, not just for me, of course, but for but for the the community at large, because yeah. frankly, most of the names on that list are women, which is great. Like yeah. Lynn Nanaj and I share the title of most produced playwright this year, which is pretty rad. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Shakespeare all the Christmas carols and Lynn and I, <laughs> like, oh. isn't that the coolest thing? And of course the people on that list are, and I, I don't actually remember all of them, but you know, Karen Zacharias is always on that list and uh, Dominique Morisot. And there's just so many incredible names and it, it marks the diversity of voices. So it is really the community of that list. That's the real, the real triumph. I mean, the other thing to, that is not a small note of that is I know some people can be a bit, a bit baffled as to why I'm on it. Cause I haven't been on Broadway. haven't had major New York productions. I had a few smaller productions, but no, nothing that would earn me that spot just for like the one play that went to Broadway or won the Tony right. or won a Pulitzer or even had a major New York, New York run. It's a bit of a, a strange pattern that I represent, which to me is regional theater, the power of the amazing yeah. community that is the rest of the country outside of New York City. It's not that we don't like the same things. I mean, a lot of the plays are happy in all of the places around the country, but it's it's been the absolute joy of my life to work in so many different regional hubs. And this is, you know, Ashland, Oregon, it's Denver, it's San Francisco, LA, Atlanta, Chicago. I mean, it's, there is, this is a rich country of, yeah. uh, of theatrical taste. And it means that I think the reason why I'm on that list is because I have a few productions in these places and they ask me what else I've written. And I say, well, here's 10 things, <laughs> 20 things. And so it also marks a relationship with a place, which is just a great, a great honor and, and a gift of this field as well. Because my job is not actually to have the same play delivered everywhere it goes. It's not a Broadway tour. It's not, yeah. it won't be identical every city. That's the whole point. My job is to write something, the design of which and the intention of which includes interpretation 
so that every community says, here's what this means to us. Here's what this looks like to us. Here's re- who represents this in our community. Mm-hmm. That's not what a novelist does. That's not what a screenwriter does. They make something that is the thing wherever it goes, right? You, you yeah. watch Star Wars everywhere and it's going to be Star Wars, right? Yeah. So you, you read read these great novels and you're going to read in the same book that somebody else is. But a play, it is going to be very different. Sometimes yeah. radically different from city to city. And isn't that the coolest thing? Oh, cool. <laughs> so I, I love so much that part of it, which I think is what all of those productions that land me on that list means is how many different revolutionists and how many different INUs and how many different Book of Wills are done. And everyone is done so, so very different, which it's a dream. It's the dreamer. I always like to end with some fun speed round, really light questions. Great. So our first speed round question is, what was the last thing you watched on TV? Ooh, I think it will honestly... Y'all, honestly, it was the Harry and Meghan documentary. Really? <laughs> I haven't oh watched it yet. Oh my God, it's so good. It's, it's just fascinating. My husband was like, are we really? And I was like, oh, we're really. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I forced him to watch it all in like two days. <laughs> and a uh, second speed round is, what was the last thing that you read? Hmm. Well, I'm in the middle of this amazing book. It's a mountaineer San Francisco mountaineer called In the Shadow of the Mountain. Her name is Sylvia, first name Sylvia. And I was hooked up with her to perhaps write something with her about her. And she sent me this, her book, and it is extraordinary. Not just as like, wow, this woman did amazing things. And this is a chronicle of those things. But the actual writing is just breathtaking. So I'm in love with it. So read it. True story. Queer, mountaineer, San Francisco Ooh. woman, Peruvian American. Like she is rad, y'all. And this book is great. So cool. Mm-hmm. Final speed round is if you could say one thing to your younger self, what would mm-hmm. you say? Oh man. Some version of don't give such a crap about other people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. All of the things that I went through as a young girl as lucky as I was and as supported as I was stemmed from that same concern that I was being a girl wrong, that I was being a daughter wrong, that I didn't look right. I didn't act right. I wasn't liked by the right kind of people, but everyone must think I'm, everyone must see that I'm, and God, you just waste so much time. I had just, you know, because the happiest places when I was at home, you know, like reading a solo or something (laughs) that's the happiest of plays but the idea of like the stuff that I cared about was the stuff of the mind and the human experience and art and those true friendships and the great conversations that happen in those intimate spaces and it never mattered (laughs) what clothes I had or how much I weighed or what you know all that silliness that I was unfortunately preoccupied by for too much of my young life. So, and you know, the other thing is some version of don't settle for bad friends. <laughs> you know, you're going to, you're going to find your people. This is true with our artistic colleagues as well. Just don't true. settle for them. You're better than that. Um, anyway, something like that. <laughs> also really? like have fun, <laughs> eat well, uh-huh. get some sleep. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Something like that. <laughs> All right. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for, that's for this great. conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. That's true. That's a 
wrap on another episode of New to the Table. Thank you so much, Lauren Gunderson, for your time, for your genius, for your story, for sharing. So many golden nuggets of advice. This is a conversation that I was so grateful to have had. So thank you, Lauren. If you want to read this conversation, it will be available in written form on our website at www.shesources.co very soon, as soon as we can get it up. And if you want to learn more about Lauren Gunderson, visit www.laurengunderson.com and go read one of her plays, go see one of her plays, go be in one of her plays, whichever one of those options suit you. Again, my name is Emma Woodfield Stern. Thanks for tuning into this episode of New to the Table, and we will catch you next time. Bye.